I'd like to dedicate this episode to Carl Davis, who died this August at 86. To claim that his work has made an impact on me is to drastically understate the matter. Witnessing him conduct his monumental score at a screening of Napoleon in 2012 uh, blew open several doors in my mind like a cannon blast. And I might not have ever sought out the subject of today's episode if he had not written a score for an obscure broadcast on Thames Television all those years ago. Thanks, Carl, for everything. to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It is 1927, and David Neary joins us to discuss The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. We are here with David Neary. David, I have two questions for you. One, tell us a little about yourself. That was a statement, not a question. Two, why in God's name did you want to come on a podcast episode from a random Canadian who is in here in New York about a Ernst Lubitsch film that is so obscure, it only exists on a horrible Thames TV rip with an admittedly amazing Carl Davis score? Well, thank you so much for having me here, Devin. I'm David Neary. I am an Irish film and media preservation specialist living in New York. I am the head of the media preservation team at the Whitney Museum of American Art. My background is in criticism and film curation, but at this stage, mostly media preservation and conservation. Wonderful. And um, why did I want to come on the podcast? Uh, Yes. Firstly, the trick you invited me. Uh, (laughs) Second of all, it's always a pleasure to get to kind of talk about film, especially kind of balancing my critical and film history tastes with like kind of the preservation aspects that I think we'll talk a little bit about today. Also, I have a great love of Lubitsch, but I would consider myself underseen. This was my first silent Lubitsch I'd seen. Mm. So this was a real nice way to force myself to do better with my Lubitsch and get into some of the stuff that I hadn't seen before. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad I could be a conduit to that. I mean, I think this is my second Silent Lubitsch. My first was The Oyster Princess, which is a wildly different film. It's, you know, back in the Berlin years, he made a few types of movies, but the two most common he made were either giant broad comedies, I'm talking about the broadest of the broad you've ever mm-hmm. seen, and uh, turgid dramas. <laughs> I like one of those more than the other. But yes, The Student Prince. And, you know, this film, I think this is a good entree to get into the restoration side of it, because this film is like quite a few films that we've seen in this podcast so far, like Eyes of Mummy Ma. He did two Shakespeare adaptations that no one's heard about because he exists in VHS quality. This film exists in an audio and visual quality that is not befitting of its artistic quality. Right. It's certainly in terms of what's accessible. I did some digging. You know, there are 35 millimeter prints out there. I saw one showed at Film Forum here in New York about five years ago, another in mm. Chicago a couple of years exist. ago at the Music Box. They exist. Now, whether or not, you know, I, well, we can kind of go deep. I didn't, you know, contact archives, you know, see if, if the negatives survive where they are. But 
But do you know what happens on midnight New Year's Eve this year? I do know what happens <laughs> on midnight and New Year's Eve this year. In fact, between now and the time this podcast goes out, this work will have fallen into the public domain. Public domain. Yes. So yes. Um, yeah, any files that have been shared are uh, retroactively, they were legal acts. <laughs> no. Yeah, this, this will be a fully viewable, reproducible, reenactable work beyond kind of, you know, usual fair use rules. It's going to be an opportunity for people to hopefully dig it out from where it is. If somebody has a print out there, they will be allowed to digitize and distribute that, for example. They will be able to, you know. But I think the real question is who has possession of the materials because rights and actual ownership of the item are a different thing. You know, you can own a copy of David Copperfield and (laughs) the book and, you know, you can distribute photocopies of that, but you're the one with the book. So it's the same thing with film, that if somebody doesn't have the film to reproduce it, you know, we can share this imperfect file that we've been sharing semi-legally uh, <laughs> up until now. Uh, we can share it fully legally, but it's, as you said, it's not quite the quality we'd like to be seeing this film at. Yeah, and Dave mentioned, Dave Kerr, the other Dave from Lady Windermere's Man, did mention at one point that it is available in a nitrate print at, I think, at the Eastman Archive? At the Eastman Archive, that makes yeah. sense. So let's say the Eastman Archive, mm-hmm. for example, if they have it and it's in the public domain, and again, this is me, I'm going to spin a hypothetical here just for fun. If some enterprising film aficionado with a few hundred thousand of dollars to blow, which is unfortunately two of those things apply to me and one doesn't, um, what would the process be for someone initiating a full restoration of a film such as, but maybe not specifically, the student Princeton of Heidelberg? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, by kind of archival rights, even before the 31st of December this year, it would be perfectly legal for the Eastman Museum to make copies for preservation purposes. That's actually covered under American copyright law. It's distributing. That becomes the issue. And, you know, the reason to do restoration is surely for people to see it. The first thing you would do in any project like that is you would be researching the materials. If you have a nitrate print, you know, that's presumably relatively contemporaneous or maybe, you know, made in the 1930s, 1940s. Nitrate was retired around 52. It's probably going to be very good condition, assuming that they've preserved it well, you know, which and nitrate is. Nitrate preserves beautifully, provided it preserves. And mm-hmm. the, it's once it kind of just reaches a certain point, usually through too much warmth, or moisture, it begins to decompose. And once it decomposes, that process is kind of irreversible, it's slowed. So it's like a feedback loop of decomposition? Yeah, now. and it kind of eats itself. What happens is the chemicals within it, it's kind of autocatalytic, so it just begins to come apart. I've dealt with nitrate prints in my time that have, they are basically just goo, thick goo, where you're trying to peel individual frames off the reel, <laughs> and then the next layer, the frames are completely dissolved, and it's mushy and gross, and it smells like bananas that have been left out in the sun for weeks and it's also highly flammable here you can't bring those there in a public vehicle they're films ain't they yes then they're flammable whether or not it's spontaneously combustible i don't know if you know like that's like i heard about this people talk about this and it's there is absolutely no evidence of that my working theory for this has always been somebody was smoking around one set it off and then claimed that you know oh it just lit itself up Um, There are no lab studies to prove that that nitrate film could spontaneously combust. As I said, it's self-eating. It devours itself in terms of the way it melts from within, but it doesn't actually catch fire. It doesn't ignite. When it ignites, it the glorious bastard's effect is in full swing. One of the I, I I don't remember my chemistry well enough, but one of the products that output from the burning of nitrate film is oxygen. 
So if you dump a burning nitrate film into a vat of water, it'll produce enough oxygen from the burning to keep itself burning underwater. Oh my god! Yeah. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, it is one of the most dangerous burning substances that can be found in an attic, you it's know? Like the um, hydrogen blimp of uh, <laughs> Exactly, right? Yeah. So the first thing you would do anyway is you would try and find out where the negative is. You want to go back to the camera negative, if at all possible, maybe an early print or an interneg. You research what's available. Basically, you find the print you're going to restore from. So let's work with this or the negative you're going to restore from. Let's imagine that this Seisman House print. Um, we we'll presume it exists. The, and- the, we're presuming it exists and we're presuming it's in great condition. I saw, I worked with nitrate film for a long time before I ever saw a nitrate projected. And I went to Rochester one time to see a nitrate print of Rebecca. And it is, it's one of the only times I've ever been like a full format purist because that stuff sparkles like, yeah. like films don't anymore. Also, it was Rebecca. So, you know, but if you know this, take this nitrate print, you would make sure that there's nothing missing from it that you can find in other versions of the film. And then what you do is you would do your presumably 4K, at least a 2K scan of it. I think people know kind of the process from there. You know, it's a. One thing I'm curious about is the photochemical part of the restoration process. So you're doing a DI, but there's a photochemical part to that process. Mm-hmm. What best practices exist for you to prep that photochemical element for the DI? Is there a certain cleanup that needs to be done? Oh, yeah. You know, there are. Um, this is the stuff I outsource just to say. So my expertise is based around who we work with in mm-hmm. these processes. There are ultrasonic cleaners that the film will go through. You know, they basically just like remove any, you know, detritus from the um, this, what's called wet gate scanning, which is basically the film as it goes through the scanner, it basically it fills with liquid and that actually fills in the cracks in the emulsion. Huh. So if there are any scratches, they'll be minimized and it stops the light from refracting incorrectly as the scan is taken. If you're doing like straight film to film. When I started in this business about nine years ago, you know, one of the things that was happening was that like they were running low on film stock because Kodak had basically stopped producing new film stock. That was a strange period, wasn't it? Yeah. And then, you know, you just have to tip the hat sometimes to the Nolans and Tarantinos of this world who really, you know, did force. Also, you know, honestly, a little bit of, you know, the Disney Star Wars, you know, these works that were shot on film when it was not necessarily popular or financially beneficial to shoot on film and just increased the demand for film so much that Kodak had to get kind of back into the business and it was a profitable universe again. You know what? I've never thought of it from that point of view, actually. Oh, yeah. As a cinematographer and as a teacher of cinematography, actually, just as much, I find myself like often arguing the counter side of that, of telling people, hey, as a capture medium, film is not, don't fetishize it, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And I've always seen kind of this film revival from the cinematography side, slightly misguided. Not that you shouldn't shoot it, it's a great format, but there's a primacy to it that people associate. But I never thought, wow, you know, if film died out, that would be a disaster for film preservation. Absolute disaster. That is an incredible point. I'm going to amend my priors. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing I'll say is if you have a polyester film reel and you store it in a cold, dry place, it'll be there in a thousand years and it shouldn't have changed chemically at almost any level, certainly at any visible level. If you have a 4K film on a flash drive and you put it in the bottom of your bag for a week, you pull it out and it is Schrodinger's flash drive. You do not know if that film is still on there because flash is just a completely volatile medium. You know, there are other digital hard drives that are better and you obviously, most things now we back up to second hard drives, Mm -hmm. the cloud, which is more hard drives, but they're elsewhere. 
the ability to preserve these things, they require constant migration. You know? Yes. Oh, don't I know it? I have 100 terabytes of hard drives in my closet. Yeah. And that's all magnetic media that's, you know, you know, you're good for 50 years if you store it well, you know? thing about hard drives though is the spinning disc ones is like you have two options you either use them and they eventually have mechanical failure yeah, they, or you don't use them and you get stiction yeah 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 it's uh, it's a real catch-22 exactly yeah so there's a reason you know that i remember so i graduated from nyu's course in moving image archiving and preservation which is a two-year master's program in film video and digital preservation I was there from 2013 to 2015 so in about 2014 we took a class trip to the Library of Congress's Audiovisual Conservation Center in Culpeper, Virginia. And I remember one of the things that was on the shelf as having newly arrived was seven reels of the Lego movie on film. <laughs> and this was going to be the deposited copy of the Lego movie. Interesting. And this is a digitally produced film, mm -hmm. you know, born digital film being produced in 2014 during essentially the film drought we can make up that term right now. So why would it be here? And of course, the reason is, is that it's going to last. Mm. You, they had sent a hard drive, you know, the Library of Congress couldn't have preserved it in the same way that they can preserve the Lego movie on film. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, downstairs they had, I kind of mentioned this earlier, that this was a period when they were running low on film stock. They actually had what they thought was going to be the last film for preservation purposes. And they had about maybe 400, you know, unshot negatives of Kodak film, and they didn't know when that ran out if they were going to be able to preserve film to film anymore. That's incredible. I mean, there's been a few recent home video releases of, you know, 4K restorations of things that are like based on film outs, for example, right? Like yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings, the last two films, totally 100% living in the DI. I think mm -hmm. it was like 2K DIs in the time. But the current version on 4K Blu-ray is a, they did a 4K scan of the film out of the 2K. And right. I found that a very interesting workflow. So looping back to this Lubitsch film, the things you need First of all, you need rights and a distribution model. You need access to high enough quality prints or ideally a negative. What you'll often find is, you know, you will get cases where there'll be a restoration and, you know, you might find like the perfect print, but the perfect print is, might have been found in Japan or Germany or somewhere. So the intertitles aren't in the desired language. Yes, so sometimes you yeah. have to either go to other prints and reconstruct the intertitles from those, you know, or... Like censor's notes and mm -hmm. stuff, yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that go into a restoration like that. You know, you're never really going to completely regenerate the original project unless you just happen to have a pristine copy. A 100%, you know, just basically never screened, not a frame ever lost. It's interesting how much a difference that makes too. I mean, like I was discussing earlier today, the Hitchcock case, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have like, it's a pretty interesting case study and in how much work it takes to swim upstream from a bad preservation work, right? Because right. you have North Maris West shot in, you know, VistaVision by Robbie Burks, beautiful mm -hmm. movie, preserved exquisitely by MGM. It was in their vault, you know, mm -hmm. temperature controlled, like climate controlled everything for like decades. Comes out, barely needs any work done to it, apparently. Compare that to Vertigo. Or To Catch a Thief, any of his other works, which were stored apparently in his shed out back. Mm -hmm. Right. The amount of work it took to reconstruct those films, even same workflow on set, same cinematographer, same lab for a lot of them. Absolutely incredible. The other big question becomes, you know, and we'll talk more about the movie eventually. We're going to get there. But no, I think one thing that's really noteworthy is, you know, the copy we have both watched 
there's no tinting. So I don't know if there are any historical examples of tinted prints of this. And would you use those or would you not? There's also, do we know if this was the original score? No, it wasn't. This was a score composed decades later by Carl Davis, who is one of my favorite living composers. He's done the scores for like the BFI Napoleon, Intolerance. He's just absolute genius, but right. completely not contemporary. Right. Yes. A terrific score. Now, you know, this is one of those questions of, you know, do you attach that? Do you dig out, you know, notes from the original score and try and recreate that if there was one? It's interesting. Yeah, for Lady Windermere's fan and Rosita, Dave Kerr earlier was mentioning that they actually had the cue sheets. Oh, wow. Great. They, they create new arrangements based on those mm-hmm. so they could actually essentially recreate something resembling what was supposed to accompany the film. Yeah. But I really, I'm so curious as to what Davis was working with because it's really in the Davis style. Like he has this operatic romantic period, mm-hmm. you know, swooning, you know, majestic style that is, it's 100% of a piece with his other works from around the world. So I would suspect it's not that, you know, based on the cue sheet, especially because it was quickly composed for Thames TV. Yeah. And so who knows? When, when did this go out? Do we know? Because it doesn't look to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I was watching it on a TV via a laptop. There are just so many just <laughs> interfering different mediums going on here. But it didn't look to me like it was digitized from video. It looks like the film itself was scanned digitally. Mm. And what are the giveaways for that versus digitized from analog video? So if it had been put on tape in London in, let's say, the 80s, you're going to get like video signal issues cropping mm. up. They're going to like add basically an extra layer of noise on top of the film grain, on top of the scratches on the film because it was not a particularly good print that they scanned. And on top of the large pixels, and you know, large pixels are what you get when you do a yeah. 480p scan. I found the Photoplay website, which is Kevin Brown's mm-hmm. company. 1996 is when it's premiered. 1996, there you go. So yeah, that would be a straight digital scan, ah, most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you'll see. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen like the full restoration of, say, Once Upon a Time in America, where oh, yes. some yeah. of the extra footage has actually been like found from, I think, Ematic tapes or something similar to that. Mm-hmm. And it's like... It's not great. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's sad. The visuals take a little dip. Um, <laughs> I remember once seeing a restoration of the Cabal cut of, you know, Nightbreed. I know of it, but I've never seen it. It's great. It's a weird one, but worth seeing for David Cronenberg acting as a serial killer. <laughs> they had restored the scenes from like a VHS tape that was like recorded on the set at the time. And it was a nightmare. I think they've done a better restoration of it since, which I have sadly not yet seen. But yeah, it's sometimes magnetic video when it's analog really, you know, it's its own thing. You know, it's beautiful in its way, but it doesn't often work in concert with film. Film is microscopically chaotic, whereas digital is like microscopically ordered. Right. A good way to express this is that every single film frame is made up of a different grain structure, right? Frame A is always going to be fundamentally different pattern than grain B. You cannot have two identically placed silver highlight crystals. But for digital, think of a digital sensor. The digital sensor always sits in the same place. Mm-hmm. Your photosite is going to be where the photosite is unless you agitate the camera at some point. So it's a fundamentally different texture. Right. This is kind of a side, but I wonder what the source of the print they were using is because this is a British company. I wonder if like the BFI or like something has a print lying around of this too. So Yeah, I mean, probably. There's no evidence it's a lost film by any of the measurements that you can kind of rate. Everything's a lost film until it's not, but something's... Are definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's on Kara Garga, therefore it's not lost. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I would imagine how they got the rights to scan it. I mean, you know, Brownlow was involved. His name carries a lot of weight. And I'm sure that they probably just put in a request of some kind, you know, purchased a, probably some very easy to get broadcasting rights. And then, you know, on the condition that they did the scans themselves. 
And yet it's got no home video release ever. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. No, so you wouldn't want to show people this version if you could avoid it, you know? No. And you also, no. if you purchased this version, you'd feel cheated. Yes. If you saw it, you wouldn't because the movie's great. So, you know, you're not going to be disappointed seeing it like this. But if you paid money for this, if you charge somebody else money to come to a cinema to see this, you couldn't justify it unless you could prove this was the only way it exists anymore. Then that's fine. There's a difference between the only way it exists and the only way to see it. Those are, you know, two really good distinction. Things. Yeah. Yeah. If you know that there's a print that occasionally shows up at film forum, you can't charge people to watch this copy. No. Yeah. So you can, there are two things you can do. One is you work with our archives and labs and researchers to build a perfect copy or two, you wait until the 1st of January and you send everybody this file. What's that word for the type of terrorism where you convince people like it's like you put out something. Oh, yeah. This is stochastic film restoration. <laughs> We're not saying you personally listeners should go and restore this film. We are just generally advocating for it with the hope someone out there will restore this film. <laughs> well, you know, there's a huge argument that like torrenting is a form of film preservation. I mean, if we consider cloud backups, which is essentially just sending bits of a file out and to be stored in several different places, then torrenting is essentially that. It is sending bits back and forth between computers so that they are mirroring each other. And therefore you have created an archival copy for somebody else's viewing pleasure. <laughs> this is why I mean, I'm probably like a, quite an extremist on the torrenting front for films like this, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, to me, it's a moral good <laughs> to yeah. basically act as a mirror for this movie. I have probably three copies of this film on my various computers. And so therefore I know that if Pass the Popcorn gets nuked or something, I can keep on this film's legacy or someone else can. One of the eight other people who's seating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. The thing is, is that you kind of need like the simple rule in the digital archiving world is the more copies you have, the safer something is. Redundancy. Uh, yeah, redundancy. Exactly. Classic rule for kind of institutions. This is what we would do at the museum is usually have two copies on site and then a third copy stored off site. Mm -hmm. if at all possible. Not always possible with the sculptures and the paintings. Yeah, I'm wondering, where's your third hopper? <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't my responsibility, thankfully. But, uh, you know, we tend to keep a readily accessible copy of an artwork, a digital RP, I should say, a deep archived version, and then we would keep the hard drive and we would store that off-site. Mm. So you got your three copies. If you were, you know, trying to be the person who, or the student, or ideally what you want is if every film has three champions who are just agree to, like, preserve a copy, Every frail film will get saved. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, the problem is that the best thing you want to save is the films. And actually having a film archive is expensive. The mm -hmm. HVAC costs to keep the moisture down. Yeah, unprofitable enterprise. Yeah. And just the size. Film is huge. You often get those like photos of like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, standing with all his films. And there's one reel for each film. And it's like, no, those films were, you know, eight to ten reelers, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they were almost half a Hitchcock each, right? Oh, I was shocked the first time I used to project 3.5 occasionally. Okay. And I was just, we had the platter system, right? Yeah. And so when I first saw my first, I mean, that's how big that's yeah, how much yeah. you know because the platters are bigger than my wingspan right it's just incredible have you ever seen an imax platter yes it's it's, it's absurd like, yeah it, you could serve a family of 10 on it well so they used to have imax cuts of movies right because they were so huge that you had a limit yeah. and i think they've since exceeded that but i've lost track of it we can probably transition into talking about the film at hand but oh, i yeah, always please. love i mean this is part of my favorite part of the show is that i can secretly make each episode about something else as well mm -hmm. But yeah, Student Principal at Heidelberg, the text, I have to say, this movie, I have a hard time being objective about it because I've seen it three times now and every single time it's absolutely shattered me. It's my, it's hard to say a favorite Lubitsch silent, but this is up there with like the doll and a couple others. And oh, it's such a beautiful film. It's a film about nostalgia. Mm -hmm. 
but it's kind of the rare film about nostalgia that isn't told in hindsight. Right. You know, it's a film about the moment when the nostalgia is generated. It's the moment where you realize that the happiest moment in your life is behind you. That moment where it hits you and the, oh shit, uh, what do I do now? And the answer in this film is a little tragic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, like the most emotional part of the movie happens completely off screen, which is the death of one of the supporting characters. Spoilers are okay, by the way. Spoilers are totally yes, yeah, no, I, was going to, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if I spoiled this movie that is now so old it's in the public domain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Yudner, who plays very much the sage mentor slash best friend, our hero. Can we? Yeah, no, we'll say hero, it's but uh, hero, we yeah. could conceptually reconsider that later. Is uh, the Crown Prince Karl Heinrich, fictional princeling. Yeah, of like Carlsberg, which is kind of a fake state of the German Confederation. Mm -hmm. Right. Which actually, weirdly, this ties into the first episode of the whole show where we explain the German Confederation. So that's some synergy right there. And this isn't even one of his German films. <laughs> no. Well, um, Since leaving Germany, he made a few films set in Germany. Right. You know, he made almost all of his films made in Hollywood were set in very or Eastern Europe. Yeah. 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 Or like mm -hmm. France or like some like Marshovia, which, you know, mm -hmm. the, the wonderful fake countries. Oh, it's beer not to be is uh, Poland. Poland yeah. And the shop around the corner is Czechoslovakia. Uh, Hungary. Hungary. Yeah. Hungary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, yes. you can go through each one. And I think he only made a couple of films set in America yeah. in his American time, which is lovely. This Paris Paramount. It's kind of a story about uh, Karl Heinrich. He's a young prince who is kind of the whole idea is he's cloistered off from society by virtue of being the future king. Yeah. He's sent off to almost a respite. When he comes of age as a present, he's sent to Old Heidelberg, which is a university town. Certainly, like, it's like one of the oldest universities in Europe. I mean, the first time we see Karl Heinrich when he's a little boy and he's, he's brought in, it's, he's not the son of the king. He's the nephew of the king who has no kids. So mm. that makes him like more disconnected. So it's almost like there's a why me is this amazing thing happening that I'm going to be king someday. But it's also the film is very much about how that's not the ideal situation. But mm -hmm. we'll get to that. Yeah, it must be great to be a king. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the other first time we see him, he's in like this little sailor outfit, you know, <laughs> which kind of, you know, then mirrors onto the uniform of the Heidelberg students. And he's kind of distraught because, you know, he's separated from his nanny and mm -hmm. we don't really learn what happened to his parents. Again, yeah, as you said, uh, yeah. just, it's not important. <laughs> we just got to roll with it. All of his human connections are like a series of functionary revolving doors, mm -hmm. right? It's like no one is actually his friend. It's all a function of his life and you've finished your function, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, he's immediately kind of handed over to this tutor who looks stern at first, has this kind of like, he looks like Einstein, right? Doesn't it? Am I, am he it, looks just like Einstein. He looks, he looks just like, okay, I, that wasn't just me. And he, um, this is Dr. Jutner. And like one of the first things he does is he just like pulls him in for this like very dear, the strange kid he doesn't know. He pulls him in for this hug. It's real like everything is going to be okay. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be okay. It's just a weirdly, not weird for Lubitsch or anything, but it's, you're watching the film and the film has been so kind of, you know, severe up to this point. And you're not expecting anything nice to happen. Yeah, at you're this on point. your guard. Right? Yeah, you're on yeah. your guard. Right. And then this incredibly nice thing happens. And, you know, the next time we see the kid, he's transformed into Roman Navarro. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were a lot of like clever flourishes in the first act of the film. But like that embrace was the moment where I was there. We're in for a sweet film. It is. It's one of his least irony laden films, even though it ends on a blatantly <laughs> ironic yeah. one. But so much of the film is this unproblematic. I mean, the heart of the romance is so sweeping. And I mean, you have kind of these two connections he makes in the film, right? One to his Dr. Jutner and the other to his great love, Kathy, played by mm. Norma Shearer. And both of those relationships are portrayed with such an almost uncharacteristic purity for Lubitsch. Right. It's most of his films. I mean, almost all the films we've watched are about these transactional romance as a game. Everyone's playing games. The Marriage Circle is a game. Lady Winter's Fan is a few games. And this is not a game. This is just, it's poetic, you know, young love. Mm -hmm. 
or in this case, you know, this kind of paternalistic love between him mm-hmm. and his mentor. It's also very, he's his mentor and he's his educator, but he's actually, he's the thing that's keeping him kind of the most grounded. Mm-hmm. He falls in love with a lay person. Is that the correct term? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a commoner, I guess, commoner, compared to yes, his yes. own aristocracy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, she's an innkeeper's daughter. So his love for her is what humanizes him. But what actually kind of keeps him grounded is the mentor who's meant to teach him the five things he's meant to yes. teach him. Etiquette, obligation, duty, demeanor, and formality. I'm convinced like three of those are the same thing, if not all of them. <laughs> uh, and the way he teaches them, and this is my, you know, you're the Lubitsch expert here. I've seen eight or nine of his films. My full takeaway from Lubitsch is, Lubitsch loves a scamp. Yes. He just loves a scamp. Especially if he's played by Maurice Sheva, yeah. Yeah. He loves a little scamp. He loves an adult scamp. And he adores an old scamp. <laughs> and what I really loved here is just how much Jutner reminded me of Charles Coburn from Heaven Can Wait, mm. who plays the grandfather there and is so indulging of the little naughtinesses mm-hmm. of our protagonist. And it's a really, really similar kind of relationship going on there between, between these characters. He reminds me a bit of Felix Broussard, especially Chop Around the Corner. Felix Broussard plays Pirovich, basically the older Jewish salesman who really just, he has his priorities straight because he just cares about getting back at his in-laws. Yeah. That's all he cares about and just having a good meal and spending quiet time with his wife. I got a bit of that vibe. Right. You mentioned uh, there's one great scene I loved. The scene that kind of won me over on the film was a similar one between Jutner and Heinrich, where Jutner is telling him, I'm going to paraphrase here, do you know what's really special about Heidelberg? And then all you see is him whisper in Heinrich's ear. You see a smile crawl across Heinrich's face and he goes, (laughs) you know, and you know exactly what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about getting educated. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's a great little inferential moment, right? You know exactly what he's saying. We all know what he's saying, but it's told through the face. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's so many great moments. I think one of my favorites is um, Prince Karl Heinrich. You know, the idea, it's his first time out in the world. He's experiencing other people and he's seeing women for the first time. He sees this beautiful woman and she's serving drinks at a party and, you know, he's like bewitched and it's magnificent. And then she takes a pint. And yeah, one of those like German pints that are a lot larger than a pint. Downs it and in a just shot. Downs it in one. And he, <laughs> the expression on his face looking down from the window is like he's just walked in on her naked and he doesn't know if he should look away or if he's, you know, it's, it's, he's so scandalized and aroused at the same time. Or when she's like it's, testing out the bed and it's so laden with innuendo and yet it's still like plausibly deniable innuendo at all mm-hmm. times. It's yeah. beautiful. Uh. And I mean, there's one tracking shot of Norma Shearer that I just think is one of the most gorgeous things I've ever seen, even though it's so simple, where it's that first time she carries the beer out to all the people and then get this, I think it's just a pan, but because they've placed men in the foreground and the background, mm-hmm. you get this beautiful parallax, right? Where she's going through and it's almost like she's gliding through a sea of men. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I could just diffuse for two hours about this movie. It's like endless, endless grace notes. And that's extended, that kind of innuendo is extended to the kind of centerpiece of the movie, which is the love scene, where it starts with that great tracking shot. Yeah, we can talk about this tracking shot for the rest of the podcast, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, yeah. that comes out of nowhere. It's yeah unreal. So how about you describe the tracking shot? Because So, okay, first of all, it's preceded by a very good bit, which is just him taking a quiet drink beside a wall, and he throws the coaster over the wall, and the wall hits Norma Shearer on uh, the, the wall. The coaster hits, <laughs> the coaster hits Norma Shearer on the head. The score for this, like, there's a perfect woodblock bonk. Uh, it's as Carl it Davis, like, trademark. Yeah. Did, like, little onomatopoeia stuff. Mickey mm-hmm. Messing. Yeah. yeah. So then she throws it back over and it hits him. Bonk again. And then, you know, he basically jumps over the wall. It falls, like, 15 feet. I mean, yeah. must have hurt. <laughs> <laughs> he does. I'm going to use this in the non-intercourse way. 
it's a proper like lovemaking scene mm-hmm. in the 1920s. You know, grab, kiss the neck. I wouldn't be a little cautious of my words because of the times that we live in. It's very consensual, but it's also improper. So, you know, there's like a playful pursuit, right? Like, playful pursuit. Thank you. That's exactly where, what I'm both playing their parts. Like, yeah. you know, it's this long lateral track, right? Where he's pursuing her and she's like playfully pushing him away in, in a way that's very clearly telegraphed but as they're both. He's running after her every time she pushes away and he's running almost in slow motion. Yes. Or at least as if he was running against a wind fan. Mm-hmm. You know, it made me think of, if not like Buster Keaton. Remember the Quiet Man, actually. Quiet Man, a little bit. No, the one I got actually is the descent into the underworld in Orpheus. Um, um that sort of slow motion effect in the cocktail of kind of like struggling through. But he keeps catching up to her and the camera is dollying in perfect sync with them. It goes from arch to arch. So from arch, arch to arch. So they're going them to the next arch. Yeah. And they're between each archway. They'll embrace. And she'll kind of playfully struggle, shall we say. Move on to the next archway and the camera kind of. You know, and then on the third or fourth archway, they're not there. The camera moves expecting The camera them. moves expecting. They're not there. And something's happening behind the last pillar. Then the punchline happens. And then the punchline happens. A little dachshund walks in from the camera right, sees them. And we don't know, well, we can guess what the dachshund is seeing, but the dachshund just turns and runs the other direction. It's incredibly well-trained dachshund. Yes. Perfect, perfect Mm -hmm. acting from this dog. Yes. A wonderful boy. And they burst out from behind the arch like almost post-coitally like breathless and then that falls on to the next scene which is equally beautiful where it's this very artificial hillside Mm -hmm. covered in white flowers it's so funny because the big money shot kiss there was behind the wall so you're not expecting it then they have this huge kiss perfectly visible on camera rolling on this flowery hillside it's such a stunner I found it interesting where like all the times I've watched this film, whenever it cuts away, like, you know, there's the classic, I mean, even the Truman Show called this out, right? When you have a lovemaking scene, you cut to like little symbolic things, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have a rocket ship taking off in The Simpsons or whatever. Yeah. But in this one, it's used in a way that I'm not used to, which is that it cuts to a few specific things, wind in the leaves, little branch, but then it cuts back to them. And I realized the point of the wind, I mean, it is a visual metaphor, but the point of the wind is this externalization because you cut back to them kissing. And so you're not really cutting away for discretion. You're cutting away to express their feelings. Right. I mean, this is so early in the tropiness of this that I don't know if it's an inversion of anything, but Mm -hmm. it at least inverts what I expect from it 95 years hence. I found that fascinating. The wind seems to like completely die in the embrace, in the kiss on the hill, having it sort of been so potent. It's almost like their love just like stops all of nature. And, you know, and the moment ends, right? And that wind is lost. You know, it's a force of nature. They can't control it. They'll never have this moment again. Yeah. Uh, it's gorgeous. And you have this lovely structure of the film, right? Where it's at that point, the film basically makes a hard stop, bisects in two. You have the love half and you have the lost half mm-hmm. where uh, the king is dead. <laughs> I won't belabor it too much, but essentially you have this mirroring thing, right? Where a lot of stuff happens that we can go into, but Carl Heinrich becomes king and decides to return to Heidelberg. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the loveliest parts of the film, but in a horribly tragic way of he returns to Heidelberg and because he has changed and so is Heidelberg, you know, the season has changed. Yeah, yeah. Right? They end up on the same hillside again and it is this trashy meadow. It looks like it's been bulldozed with just switchblades. It looks so disorganized and gross and... Ah, it's um, it's like the metaphor for what's become of their romance is, you know, it's so clear, unsubtle, yeah. but it's sublime. Yeah, it's interesting because this is not a movie of subtlety in the small yeah. ways it is, but in the big sweep, it's such a basic story and it does it so well. But I love the scene where he returns and he meets his friends again. He mm-hmm. meets his colleagues. And now instead of being like, you know, chummy, clinking giant beer steins together, 
they treat him as their commander in chief, right? They treat yeah. him as their king. He sits down and there's an incredible title card that I transcribed here because I thought it was so funny. He sits down and his former friend stands up and with a stone face says, gentlemen, his majesty has honored us, his unworthy servants. From his lofty eminence, he has graciously condescended. And then it cuts off and he cut to Carl Heinrich's face looking dejected. <laughs> It's just so over the top. Just the dime goes from a colleague to there's no going back from this. Mm -hmm. You cannot be one of them anymore. It's heartbreaking. Can I spoil the last line? You can spoil everything. I can spoil everything. I'm going to spoil it. There is 100 reasons to see this movie with or without knowing the last line, but it is, we've talked about the kind of bittersweet irony of it, but you know, it ends. They part in the raggedy meadow and they realize they just can't be together because the difference is he has to marry this princess who we never really see, which I think is, I was shocked. We never so see her expecting face. her yeah. to come in. Played by Una Merkel or something. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But he climbs into a wagon to roll away and then it does a perfect match cut on the wagon wheel to like a royal carriage at his wedding. And the Carl Davis score, I love that moment because it goes from a small like, little arrangement and the melody stays the same, but suddenly the arrangement explodes and it's this opulent version of that same thing. I love it. It's yeah. on the nose, but it's great. Yeah, totally. And he's like looking at the window, trying to put on a happy face about, you know, being married and whatever. And this lovely old couple leaning out the window to watch the procession goes by and one of them intertitles to the other. It must be wonderful to be king. Yeah. Uh, Cut to Carl Heinrich, like yeah. trying his best to put on a good face for his wife. Yeah, and just end the movie. It's just like, oh, wow. It's interesting watching any filmmaker of Lubitsch's caliber making a film that is nowadays such a cliched B-movie genre, mm. right? Which is, you know, you type prince or king into Netflix, you know, <laughs> you are going to get so many films that have identical plot synopses to and this. And also this film has been made like five times? And this film has been made There's five so times. Many versions but of you know, thing. if you, there are probably five new movies out this year with almost identical plots mm -hmm. that are Christmas themed, uh, <laughs> playing on the Hallmark Channel, you know, starring them. Yeah. somebody who was almost very famous 10 years ago. And, um, you know, <laughs> it is that sort of, you know, these princes are real people too. You know, there are still too many princes in the media for my liking, but it's true. They are real people and they do sometimes marry non-princesses. And it is rare nowadays that these wish fulfillment stories do go the sad ending. And this one doesn't just go the sad ending. It twists the knife. It, it twists really the knife. <laughs> and it twists the knife as like, there's no antagonist. There's no, there's a stern prime minister, but he's not, villainous the dying king clearly doesn't get his nephew but he's not villain there's no you get where he's coming from too because like yeah. yeah you gotta ensure the continuity of the monarchy yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and and you know what were our five things we had to do <laughs> and a good obligation there it is obligation yes. duty obligation and duty that's two of the five it's about a person who's truly trapped through kind of no one's fault except the apparatus of society mm -hmm. you know he did have this kind of beautiful romance brief there's a scene after they kind of get together where he takes her out for a carriage ride and he's like, I want to show everyone you. He's a wife guy, right? So it's like, you know, he, he, it, it turns out in the end, he's never going to live up to his wife by nature because he doesn't care for his new wife. And then there's the reveal that that scene is a fantasy, right? Yeah, yes. He goes right, and it turns out he's describing it. You know, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, and then of course he's like immediately told that he's been engaged to somebody else. And yeah, of course, you've got to ensure the survival of Carlsberg with what is he, like Attenberg or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> survival and, you know, it's his duty. Anyways, it's ugh. The bit that really broke my heart, aside from just like killing Dr. Jutner off screen, how dare they, is when he's going back to become king and presumably to eventually get married. Dr. Jutner you know, embraces him what turns out to be the last time and says, do not let them crush your spirit, Carl Heinrich. Stay young. It's like, yeah. oh, uh, harsh. 
one detail I found interesting was that Dr. Gertner was 43 when he died. I mean, according to his grade, 42, 43. And I'm like, and he's no longer young? or <laughs> You know, anyways, I found it interesting just this, I don't know. I mean, I guess that was old in 1902. Old-ish, but not ancient. They definitely talk about him as if he is this old timer. He's not quite. One of the other titles, I think, says something about, you know, the... the Heidelberg is a place for the young. There's no place for young. the young, exactly, <laughs> yeah. But not for people like Dr. Yutner. It's like, Jesus. Yeah, it's like, good. Some of us are nearing our 40s. <laughs> but there's something in that about the kind of way that the world makes corpses of us all faster than we should. And I think there's this interesting bent to a lot of this, not satires per se, but some of them were satires. This isn't really, but films about Europe that Lubitsch made. He actually visited Heidelberg to do B-roll for the film, you know, establishing shots. And apparently none of that was used. Right. He just kind of took advantage of it to do his second to last trip to Europe ever, actually. Mm -hmm. And he apparently going back, this is his first time going back since emigrating to Los Angeles. Apparently it reinforced to him how he felt more like a real stranger in Europe, right? He felt that he no longer really belonged. I feel like watching this film near this kind of idea of estrangement from where you came from, this kind of feeling he had, this almost really dark view of the monarchies of Europe, right? This sense of, wow, this is a system that is deeply inhumane. Mm -hmm. Versus his, you know, treatment, especially later on of the American, I guess you could call just free market capitalism right. that he clearly bought into, you know, at the end of Clooney Brown, where I don't know if you've seen Clooney Brown, mm -hmm. but the lovely ending where the two leads emigrate to New York in this case. Yeah, yeah. And it ends with that he becomes rich and famous, famous by yeah. becoming mm -hmm. the author of the Nightingale murders. And there's the contrast there of how, like, whenever he depicts that, there's almost a joy that and then there's a the lamentation whenever he's depicting these kind of crusty old European empires that I find very interesting. Yeah. I mean, the Lubitsch closest to my heart is very much having can wait and it is so you know just accepting of the excess of these wealthy new yorkers you know? <laughs> i always forget that that is set in the u.s it's yeah yeah a little aside here, Heaven Can Wait is one of the films where I've only seen it once and mm -hmm. I fully did not connect with it the first time. And my friend and past and future guest, Will, assured me, you got to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's the first Lubitsch I saw, but it was probably to be or not to be. It was probably the first I saw. And, you know, it was mine too. Yeah. And it's a movie I warm to every time I see it. The first time you see it, you're not really observing whether it's good or bad or whatever. You're just saying to yourself, are they allowed yeah. to say How this? How the hell did this happen? Is this okay? Yeah. Can I laugh at the Hitler? He um, left with the Nazi suicide jokes yeah. the concentration camp Erhard? It's like, it's like <laughs> they don't know what I know. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible comedy, but I did my MA in film studies at University College Dublin, and my thesis was on limbo and purgatory as represented in cinema. Mm. So I had a couple of films that I really looked at in particular, things like A Matter of Life and Death and Correida's Afterlife, films that actually use cinema itself as a construct within. But, you know, I peppered it with a lot of, I watched a lot of films that kind of, you know, observe how we considered temporary afterlives. So my supervisor burned a DVD of Heaven Can Wait For Me. It just floored me the first time I saw it. That was my, like, I don't think it was my first Lubitsch, but it was certainly the hard shot straight to the sternum. I look forward to revisiting that in one hour with you, because those are the two that I've been told frequently, you slept in this. I think you'll find the punchline at the end is so, so moving. Lubitsch is so forgiving. And I, you know, he's one of the most unjudgmental directors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The excesses and the immoralities, the human immoralities of his characters. I don't think it ever comes across like stronger than in that film where he's just, Donna Mesh is at worst a cad, at best 
scamp and a half. <laughs> but he's, you know, Lubitsch loves him. Oh, yes. It's like a tribute to the rake. Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. Exactly. And I think there's a bit of that in all of his films. Certainly of the ones I've seen. I mean, you know, designed for a living. <laughs> oh, the, the, yes. yes. Yeah, the er example of showing in a, an at the time, you know, unnatural relationship in, a, I mean, that film condones it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Straight up condones it. Absolutely. I don't know enough about his biography to say, you know, what he got up to in his personal life. I refuse to believe he wasn't a scamp. It's interesting. I mean, there is some backstory about that. I mean, basically his scampiness, his mistress was his work. Mm. You know, he basically was a notorious workaholic and you would constantly get into positions where his significant others would basically abandon him and cheat on him. Right. His father, though, was the rake that he depicts. Ah, there we go. Okay. Yeah. Like his father. I mean, I've told the story so many times that I'll probably like I'll probably cut me saying this, but he used to apparently relate an anecdote frequently that he had to have like an on-call locksmith for his father because he would have affairs with so many of his maids. Right. That's like half of his rake characters. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's the grandfather in Heaven Can Wait all over. I mean, even his writer, he married, I think, Lenny in 21, 22. He, her, and his writer, who's one of his best friends, Hans Crowley, moved to America. And Hans was basically his most consistent collaborator for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. And what does Hans do? Runs away with Lubitsch's wife in 1929. <laughs> and they never worked together again. <laughs> So I think in a weird way, Lubitsch is depicting those around him more than he's depicting himself. Right, right. Fascinating. Okay. It's mm. very ironic because I would expect, I fully saw him as the rake. I was like, yeah, this guy pulls it in. Right. But no, I mean, he was just, he loved his work. <laughs> Probably to a fault. It killed him early. Mm -hmm. He had a heart attack at 55, I think. Yeah. Okay. Actually, I should say a heart attack while in the throes of passion. That I didn't know. <laughs> it's the most Lubitsch way to die. It is. Yeah. I feel like that feels, seems like one of those things that like someone would open with. It's like, you, yeah. you know. Why is this not more well known than? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, huh. Well, there you go. That's what I came on this podcast. I came out here to learn today. Oh, so, likewise. Uh, no, great. One thing I want to actually, I was going to mention this one. I think it's really felt in this film is that I was thinking through this film and Lady Windermere's fan, but especially this one. It is incredible how well suited Lubitsch's style is to the talkie era. I mean, his camera placement, the way he stages dialogue is basically how he would stage dialogue in especially the early 30s. It felt like he almost had to make no adjustments to his visual style beyond just maybe more care over camera placement so the mic and the flowers wouldn't show as much, right? But it really feels like his, I mean, compare his work here to like Murnau or Long, you know, and random other German 30s director. And it feels like this film could have been made with sound half the time. I think you're totally right. What I find about Lubitsch, his theater background mm -hmm. strikes to me that his sets always look stagey, but incredibly lived in. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like he's not so much trying to build a film set, but expanding a theater stage set to encompass the world or a house or whatever it is. And then he just, he films it. You get kind of pulled in and are put on the stage of this Lubitsch theater film. I can connect this to, I think it was Hitchcock. I might be misattributing this, but Hitchcock, I think, said of Steven Spielberg. He's the first of us who doesn't see the proscenium arch, right? And I think Lubitsch is almost the opposite of that, where in every Lubitsch film, you feel the proscenium arch. Yes. You feel mm -hmm. the theater, the theatrical elements in there. It's never not present. But I often think that there's this modernist tendency that I don't quite agree with, that if you don't see the proscenium arch, therefore it's a good, you know? And the Lubitsch, though, you see it, and that's just an essential part of his style. That theatricality, I mean, to be or not to be, which is about that. So, yeah, right. The one on-screen murder in that movie happens on a stage, yeah. right? Under the proscenium arch. 
it's the most <laughs> chilling kind of almost real feeling moment of the film and it's the irony so he incorporated that into his style right it's you're never in the real world you're in lubitsch land you know and lubitsch land exists on the stage so yeah i completely understand what you're saying mm. i have one thought on the cast go on please is this the greatest lubitsch film with no great performances <laughs> um because i think everyone's good but yeah I, I everyone's good and i think there's no like, I mean, I get a list of a bunch of people who are probably like Greek. Most people are like, there's no like Henny Porton in this. There's no like Irene Rich from Lady Winterbear's fan who I just like lights up the screen, right? Mm-hmm. I think everyone's really good, but no one I think owns the movie in this. No, absolutely. I think um, Jean, Jean or Jan or Jean Herschel, who plays Dr. Jutner, comes the closest. Mm-hmm. I was shocked to realize he is the antagonist slash hero slash however you want to put it of greed. What? He's in him? He's, um... How did I not... How did this slip past my radar? Marcus Schuller in Greed, yeah. Who goes from bumbling sidekick to villainous romantic lech to hero cowboy and to, you know, simply the... Of the silent era, single greatest final shot of a movie. <laughs> there was a little wiki hole I fell down and uh, that came up and I'm there. Are you sure? Um, and it, But I hadn't heard Roman Navarro before. The... <laughs> I was describing him to somebody and I said, imagine a ravishing Buster Keaton. That's exactly what I, every time I see him on screen, it's just like this, but the very kind of, you know, soulful eyes, wide eyed, but not sad in the same way that Buster Keaton's eyes are. And I did this big role, which one of those films that's like, I will make time for you eventually. You is the 1925 Ben-Hur in which he plays Ben-Hur. I think everyone's well cast. Yeah, everyone delivers exactly what the movie needs. Yeah. But there's no like scenery chewing me performance. There's no, no like Ossie Oswald or whatever. Mm-hmm. At this point, I mean, one of the weaknesses I think of his Berlin years is that he often needed like an Ossie Oswald or like Paul Negri or someone to like light up the screen yeah. to, for the film. But here it's like, no, the direction is so strong, so flawless that everyone can just play their parts and do it reasonably well. And the film is a darn masterpiece. Well, I read the, um, the cinematographer, who's John Mescal. Mm-hmm. who went on to be James Whale's cinematographer. Yes. There's not enough of moments for him to truly shine in this, but like in those scenes on the hill we've mentioned, the archways sequence, the crowd of beer drinkers, the way the camera moves there. It's you know, beautiful. Absolutely yeah. astonishing. Um, Lupe just worked with, I mean, he worked with Rudolf Matei, who shot To Fear Not To Be, mm-hmm. who is known for a little film called The Passion of Joan of Arc. I've heard of it. Yeah, heard of it. And he's with Charles Rocher on Rosita, and I think at least one other film. He also shot a little film called Sunrise. So yeah. so familiar. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, it's, and I think, I mean, Matei, I think it's an incredibly storied career, but to me or not to be is the lighting in that film is beyond gorgeous and chilling and horrifying sometimes. <laughs> but Lubitsch is interesting because his cinematographers are never at their showiest with him, right? Yeah. With the exception of probably The Merry Widow. I forget who shot that. I'll get to that. But that film is showy. Have you seen The Merry Widow? I haven't seen The Merry Widow, no. Oh, yeah. It's another MGM. So it's similar to this. It has that MGM lush style. And it's of his Hollywood films. It's the most he ever just went for it stylistically. Just go for broke. We're putting everything on the table. This is a freight train of a movie. I'm just going on tangent after tangent now. I got something to ask. Yes. I'm going to ask it at literally the worst point in this Look podcast. I, I can edit. What is the title of this movie? Uh, the Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. Are you sure? <laughs> it's based on the play Old Heidelberg from 1901. Mm-hmm. And then there's an operetta from 24 called The Student Prince. Yes. And then the film is called The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. And yes, the title card on the film is Old Heidelberg. Yes. Apparently, um, <laughs> depending on the print, it's certain prince, American yeah. prints were just listed as Old Heidelberg. But the title during the production was The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg. And I think that's the official, like, you know, the one you can find, like, the censors and stuff. Sure. I just, like, nobody seems to be able to agree. <laughs> oh, you should see the Berlin years. It's wild how many alternate titles. Everything has an American title, like Madame de Berry's Passion. And then 
This is something I found on a forum that I cannot verify, but the first one of this whole series called When It Was Dead was released in Germany as Where Is My Treasure, 1916. I found this on a forum. I cannot verify it, but apparently the censor didn't like When It Was Dead because Germany's losing the war. Yeah, right. <laughs> no one wants to be reminded of the dead people. So it's Where's My Treasure, which is the least applicable title I can imagine for that movie. You know, that's the same reason A Matter of Life and Death was retitled Stairway to Heaven for the really? American release. Ah, that makes so yeah. much sense. Yes. They were worried the box office would not accept death of the title. And Michael Powell apparently said, but didn't Death Takes a Holiday just like rock the box office? <laughs> and the distributors were like, yeah, but that's a holiday. That's fun. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And that was a hard film to actually catalog properly mm -hmm. because of the two titles for years. And then finally, I think with the most recent restoration, Scorsese's involvement, Film Foundation and Criterion, you know, it's finally a matter of life and death in America. But it can literally take decades upon decades to resolve these issues, you know, over whether it is student prison in Old Heidelberg or Old Heidelberg in or <laughs> Prince in Heidelberg. Or <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. And anyway, it's endless sweating for me over which title to use in like the title. The yeah, rule like, is pick one and stick with it. And that's yeah, as long as you right don't. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is there anywhere people can find you? Anything of yours you want to plug or whatever? It's okay to say no to. <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, people can find me too regularly on Twitter as long as that's still around. I mean, <laughs> that's a really in question as of the court. Oh, you're episodes. in the future, guys. You know things that we don't know yet. Who's going to run it? <laughs> <laughs> this morning, Musk lost the poll. The and, poll uh, yeah, yeah, so we're still in the negative space there. We're dividing we... our Twitter like it's the Byzantine Empire. You yeah, know? If, if it's real bad, please send word back to us. Um, Time machine us at... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you can Twitter machine me at Deus Ex Cinema, or if you're in New York, come by the Whitney Museum. We don't always have time-based media shows up, but there's usually something installed in one of the galleries. See the hoppers? <laughs> and you, we have hoppers. We have almost all of the hoppers. That's true. And currently, there's an amazing hopper in New York show up. That's I don't like using the word unmissable. Nothing's unmissable. You all have lives to live. But also, if you're in New York, go see the hopper show. It's real great. If you, like me, are a cinematographer in North America... <laughs> You are contractually obliged. <laughs> it's in the union agreement to see this. But thank you so much for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. In real treat. Next week, David Cairns joins us to discuss The Patriot, as well as the works of director Joseph von Sternberg. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. Anya Shitak-Scott was our recording engineer. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 